Hey everyone, welcome to Asian Tech Leaders, the podcast where we interview some of the most interesting and inspiring Asian CEOs, entrepreneurs, and thinkers. I'm your host, Justin Pang, and I'm on a mission to share the stories of Asian tech leaders to help guide your personal and professional life. Thanks so much for joining me, and I hope you enjoy the podcast. Rob Chang is the CEO and co-founder of Griffin Digital Mining, a company focused on sustainable Bitcoin mining. Rob has deep experience in the cryptocurrency space, including previously being the CFO at Riot Blockchain, where he helped turn around the company during the midst of the last Bitcoin bear market. Prior to working in crypto, Rob had a successful career in capital markets where he led equity research focused on precious metals and mining. Rob obtained both his MBA and undergraduate degree from the University of Toronto. In this episode, you'll learn more about why Griffin Digital Mining has a head start over most Bitcoin mining companies, how and why Rob made the leap from traditional finance to the crypto space, the importance of mentorship and why Asians should be less humble, and also Rob's prediction for where the Bitcoin price will go. Hope you enjoy this episode and let's get started. Hey Rob, thanks so much for joining the podcast today. Thanks for having me. Really excited to um, dive deeper into your background, talk about uh, your company, Griffin Digital Mining, but wanted to start on a uh, much more tangential topic, which is Simu Liu. Um, <laughs> in front of me, I have a Shang-Chi action figure. Cool. Uh, the first uh, action figure I bought for myself in a long time, because I feel like he's such an inspirational story. Number one, as a Asian Canadian uh, male, uh, being the you know first, uh, Asian uh, Marvel superhero. And then number two, my secret past was that I was an accountant and uh, Simu Liu also was an accountant at Deloitte. So um, can you share what your uh, uh, Simu Liu story uh, is with the audience? Yeah, it's kind of funny. I, I, I sort of know him. I, I wouldn't say we're friends, but we, we've met each other a few times. Um, we used to live in the same condo uh, for, for, for a few years and he had a really cute dog and I have a dog that I walk and uh, we both tended to have a similar-ish schedule. So every so often I'd run into him and we chat a little bit, our dogs would play, but uh, but yeah, it was cool to meet the guy before he, uh, he his career took off with uh, with Shang-Chi, which is great for him. Yeah. Really but do you have any um, photo evidence of that that you could brag on no, Twitter no, at some no. point? I'm not really the type to fawn, so I I, I have I hear you. and I just generally don't do the oh, pictures. Yeah. Uh, so unfortunately you got, not, yeah. you know, mental pictures. Sure. You gotta play it cool, right? You don't wanna be like that fanboy, <laughs> even though deep down I would be, the one asking for the selfie. So good job. That's <laughs> true. I was a big fan of his and Kim's convenience. I thought it was a great show. So, you know. yeah. And I mean, uh, it would be great to kind of talk about like that story, right? Or the lens of identity. And, you know, um, right now you're the CEO and co founder of a, a company. Um, if you could actually kind of share your origin story, kind of in, in the spirit of like talking about superheroes, uh, wow. what was your upbringing like? And, um, could you share a little bit more about what it was like um, growing up in your household? Yeah, so I, I guess it's kind of the traditional Chinese family. I'm Chinese. I, I look Korean. Well, I get that a lot, but no, I'm Chinese. And uh, it, it was that that's the, the traditional upbringing, I guess. From my parents are from Hong Kong, both of them. Uh, we grew up in Mississauga, for those who are aware of that, where that is, and, uh, and yeah, and bounced around. My my parents were entrepreneurial. They were originally bankers, like the retail bank, uh, bankers uh, at the management level. Yeah. Um, my dad was entrepreneurial, so he decided to leave that and start a meat processing business that was doing actually quite well. Um, and uh, and then simultaneously opening up a restaurant and a bakery at the same time. So we were vertically wow. integrating. 
and I was very impressed. Like I, I, I wish it happened when I was older and I could help because uh, like all businesses and when the economic downturn happened, we struggled a little bit and eventually had to shut those down. Um, when I was doing my MBA later on, which I could get into, I realized that there are certain things that were missed because, you know, he's never done it before. And mm. he was a science guy who just decided to do business, which is kind of normal, I guess, for entrepreneurs is that they usually don't end up with what they studied. But uh, it, it would have been really cool if I was able to apply the things I learned now that I'm adult, Rob, uh, back mm. then, helped my family out back then. But uh, but it was it was a cool environment because you, you get the traditional ups and downs of, a, of an entrepreneurial business that did do well and then kind of struggled whereby, you know, uh, we went from being fairly uh, average to I, I would almost even say below average in terms of economic status back then mm -hmm. to ramping up to having a nice house uh, with, with you know the Mercedes, which is really kind of the apex thing at that time when you when you when you when you get better and then kind of coming back down when things kind of struggle. So it was an interesting growth period where I had to um, uh, deal with how an entrepreneurial family works in Asia uh, mm -hmm. as well as. Uh, you know, the struggles during that time. And of course, being Asian, there's always the demand of, you know, you bring home grades, you bring in a 90, what happened to the other 10%, right? That is a joke that happens. But seriously, that actually does happen. At least I did live that. And it was always an environment of what could you have done better, um, which is something that I've taken to heart. And it's something that I apply in life. So if you talk about one of the driving things that dr drives me now is that type of upbringing of always looking for constant improvement. And that's part of I think an Asian culture thing, because it's so common when I talk to other people that that's how their families have treated them as well, which kind of sucks during that time. But uh, but uh, but yeah. And so uh, I, I did that. And then, uh, you know, standard education, went to U of T twice, did it once for a regular school and then once for MBA. Mm -hmm. uh, and then just, you know, in terms of the, the career path, it was always um, towards the finance side. Um, first off, um, when I went out of undergrad, let's say, my first position was with a company called a little internet company called 123jump.com, which I'm pretty sure does not exist because I've Googled it a few times. I don't think it exists <laughs> anymore, which was kind of like an internet startup, a, which uh, uh, basically did investment research off the internet, which was kind of topical at the time. It was wow. rising during that time. Left there to join Morningstar, which some people may have heard of because that's a, mm -hmm. a more well-known firm. And I was part of their Canadian analyst team. Um, did some uh, trading. Uh, at a place called Swift Trade, which actually ended up feeling more like a boiler room, almost not not in the <laughs> negative way, but in terms of how they kind of just churn people. I uh, did that for a little bit, and I decided I, I needed a better jump, so let's do my MBA. So I did mm. go went to U of T and, and did my MBA. Um, left when when I graduated, I actually graduated into a hedge fund position, which was kind of cool. Mm. And given the fact that when I was with Morningstar, I did some media stuff, which kind of made me a little more sexier during the application yeah. process when I was doing my MBA applications. And so uh, I first started off at a hedge fund uh, that was pretty cool because I was allowed to kind of run my small portfolio within it. They allowed me that type of mm. leverage um, uh, of freedom. So I did a little bit of that, uh, moved on later to BMO as a, a, a research analyst there. So a research associate there supporting some of the analysts. And then my career just kind of jumped around to uh, either uh, an investment place and then another uh, sell side firm. So I ultimately jumped a few times and ended up at a place called Cantor Fitzgerald uh, rose a little bit. So I was the managing director, uh, head of metals and mining research there. Um, Bloomberg made, made me top precious metals analyst for a quarter in 2016, which was kind of cool. Mm. Um, and then um, how I got into crypto, which is usually what people care about. And I probably answered way too long uh, for what you originally wanted me to do. Um, but the reason why I went into crypto, which people care about, is um, Teenage Rob saw the growth of the internet. 
Mm -hmm. And what I mean by that is when the internet uh, took off, it changed the world. It was exciting. People who got in had an opportunity to change the world. Uh, and I also noticed that whichever companies they joined, if they joined early enough, did really, really well. So from a impact in the world standpoint, that's going to be really cool because it'd be fun to do. And then on the second part, it's if you're fast enough and you're in the right companies, which it was kind of easy in the beginning, you're going to do really well mm. uh, financially as well. So I thought, told myself at the teenage level, if I ever see this again, I am going to drop everything and jump over. So in 2017, when I was talking to some of my institutional portfolio manager clients, um, and I noticed that they were starting to put Bitcoin into their portfolios. And I asked them, why are you doing that? And they said, well, this is something that's going to be just as good as gold, if not better. Did my own research and realized, yeah, we're seeing a fundamental change in how the world is going to work because of blockchain. And Bitcoin is going to be leading that way as a major form of value transfer that's just superior uh, in almost every way to the traditional fiat system. So I thought, mm -hmm. OK, this is it. I promised myself. So I, so I, I left the investment banking research world and joined Riot Blockchain as their CFO. And at the time, it was the largest company uh, uh, in the in the uh, Bitcoin mining space, still top two, and uh, it had a great ride, had to had a great opportunity to learn at the top because it was the largest company and uh, and had to manage it, which is a really good experience. It sucked at the time, manage it during a down period mm -hmm. uh, where it was struggling. But uh, but yeah, it was a good experience. And then through a couple other iterations, I ran into the group uh, that I'm working with right now at Griffin. Amazing, amazing story. So much there I want to like unpack. Yeah, and like the first that. is actually the jump from Cantor Fitzgerald into Riot blockchain. Yeah. I get from the subjective and like, you know, um, intuitive perspective, you're like, this is it, this is the opportunity. And you, it's much more of like a feel than like, uh, you know, logical uh, decision, I feel like, in at least when I made similar um, decisions in my life. Was it, but there were obviously risks to making that jump, right? Like oh, sure. whether it's financial status, um, you know, what what your future road um, might look like. So can you share a little bit more of those risks that you were weighing before you made that jump? Oh yeah, and that was a, a very real consideration during that time because I was leaving a world where I was getting a consistent good salary. Most would consider it very, very strong. Uh, yeah. doing really well and uh, going to a company that is effectively a startup at the time yeah. and was also going to pay me quite well and give me a great stock package as well. But I didn't know if it was going to survive. And that's yeah. the risk you take, right? And, that, and that's, yeah. that's part of the entrepreneurial spirit. Um, so, so I did do an all, a lot of analysis. And what I found, and this is helpful because I used to be an analyst, is you look at the people who have done incredibly well in, in life in terms of financially, most of them have done it being owners of companies or owning equity yeah. of companies. You usually don't get there in a job where you get paid a salary. And so I thought, well, I'm young enough. Plus I promised teenage Rob that when I see this happen, do it, do it. So this is the time it's, it's do or die. I believe I could always come back, which is nice because I did have offers to come back to that world, the, the research world or the investment banking world uh, through several other of my peers. Uh, so that was always nice. So I thought, okay, if this fails within one or two years, I'll come crawling back with my tail between my legs, but I could still at least go back to where I was. So why not? Right, right. And it is good to kind of have that like, okay, worst case scenario, like I felt like this when I first left my accounting job, yeah. I'll just have to be an auditor at a big four accounting firm, which, yeah. you know, it wasn't that bad, but, but I didn't want to do it. But yeah, it was, <laughs> I could still have like a decent um, career and lifestyle. Um, and yeah. then curious to know what was going through your mind when, you know, you join in 2017 uh bitcoin price and like you know euphoria and the media is like at an all-time high and then all of a sudden like the yeah. price and the sentiment goes the other way 
How are, what's going through your mind during that time? So, so, uh, so it was interesting. Um, well, I joined in 2018, so the rise okay. is already happening because I think it started around U.S. Thanksgiving in 2017 when it yeah, really yeah. took off. And when I joined, it was kind of on its way down. I think when I joined, it was around $13,000 for Bitcoin, which sounds laughably low now, but it was great then. Yeah, yeah. On its way, I think, to 17, maybe 18, and then it went almost straight down to 3,000 over the rest of the year, I think. So uh, I, I basically was coming in at the top of the crest of the roller coaster just before it started coming down, which is <laughs> challenging. Um, it, it, oh, it's, yeah. it, it, it's a it's it's it sucks uh, quite frankly because you start seeing what ended up being a massive what was a massive amount of cash in your bank account start going away without the requisite revenue coming in to offset it. Oh, yeah. so what looked like a solid cash position started whittling down, and you you, you start look thinking of ways to uh, save it. Uh, you might end up quite honestly, having to stretch out payments to certain people that you're supposed to pay is just survival. And, it, and and as I hinted earlier, it did suck at the time to do that because it was just tough managing things. Plus the media didn't like the company uh, because of, of certain other things. And, uh, and uh, the general financial system was still anti-Bitcoin. They were shutting yeah. down bank accounts. Insurance companies were not interested in covering us, stuff like that. So it, it was tough at the time, but it has been the best trial by fire and quick learning experience I have ever had. Um, mm -hmm. I have the confidence to deal with, I think, any business matter, at least with companies, because I've effectively had to rescue a company from the brink of bankruptcy at one point um, because of having to go through all those different things where there is, you know, negative media sentiment, negative regulatory sentiment, uh, running out of cash, bad commodity price, just anything possible that could go wrong was happening during that time. But uh, we survived. And uh, the company is now top two in the world. Like, I think it's like three billion plus, two billion somewhere around there. So, yeah, I'm I'm pretty happy with what I did because. And look at the price of Bitcoin now, and like the yeah. adoption from institutional investors and countries as like. So now, how do you feel? Oh man, <laughs> it's great, right? Like I, Vindicated. I, I believe I'm in the best industry right now, uh, yeah. in, in in terms of upside and potential. Actually, I'm in two because I'm also associated with the uranium world, which I think is also doing great. Uh, so I think I'm in the best too, but my primary job is Bitcoin and uh, it looks like the world is starting to understand or has, it is now in the process of understanding that Bitcoin one is here to stay. It's not really a fraud item that only yeah. drug dealers use, which was always a silly argument once people did some research on how that works. Uh, but it was used like that before. But the global uptake of Bitcoin and the blockchain network is here to stay. And uh, it really is a matter of how much global uptake we're going to see. And I think we're still in the very beginning of that. And, and we're excited and we're going to be at the forefront of it. Yeah. And it's amazing because I, I, I started, um, you know, my own like minor investing in like Bitcoin in the 2017, 2018 run and cool. just had to hold on and not talk about it for three years and yeah. like, just pretend I didn't have any Bitcoin. Yeah. But yeah, it is amazing to see, number one, the resilience, obviously, right? It's like the longest standing crypto hasn't been hacked, hasn't been duplicated. And then I think the second um, really interesting thing is now people most, I mean, it's kind of just a matter of fact that Bitcoin's here to your point, right? It's no one's really, I feel like debating. It's about, okay, how much should we invest? And like, to what degree are we investing? Are we investing in the coin? Are we investing in an ETF? Are we going to just have a broader basket of uh, cryptocurrencies? And I feel like just that shift of conversation is just such a huge confidence for all the Bitcoiners out there, myself included. Yeah. Like, okay, now people are actually moving on to the next thing, like, oh, NFTs and like, uh, you know, DAOs and just other applications of the blockchain. And I feel mm -hmm. like the Bitcoin um, debate is kind of largely over. So Yeah, yeah, yeah I, I think the global social consciousness is now moving towards 
uh, how do we invest in it or how do we include it as opposed to is this real, which is key for the development of this. Yeah, so fascinating. Um, and for those who aren't too familiar with Bitcoin mining, can you just explain in a really simplistic way what is Bitcoin mining? Right? We that's know. always that's yeah. always fun to do. So um, effectively, there is a algorithm that has an, effectively an equation that is out there, and all the miners, which we're one of, um, are competing to solve the equation. And the process is actually laughably simple. It is an extremely complex equation that's designed to be solved every ten minutes based on the global networks competition for it. And what we're effectively doing is our machines are throwing numbers at that equation until one of us hits. And uh, be because there are so many of us, the equation gets pretty complex. Um, but what ends up happening is, is once the uh, once the number that is thrown in is the accurate one, the rest of the machine, the rest of the machines start verifying whether it is accurate or not. And that's how the system is secured, because you require at least 50% of the global computing power dedicated to mining Bitcoin to agree before that block is confirmed, every transaction or whatever data is within that block is now locked in, and then they move on to the next block. And then whoever was successful in throwing the first correct number in gets paid currently six and a quarter Bitcoin uh, to get to uh, mm. for the reference. And that just repeats every 10 minutes or so. So it's just like by basically putting raw compute power to like get the be the first one to get the number. Yeah. Like it's, it's, yeah. It's, okay. At the extreme basic level, I have machines that throw numbers at an equation. Yeah. <laughs> Very interesting. And I, I read like the break-even cost for Griffin is like just over $7,000 per Bitcoin. The, that's USD, right? I'm assuming. Correct. Yeah, the current price is around like, you know, 60,000. Yeah. Uh, what, do you, what do you feel like are the barriers to having more Bitcoin miners come in and just eat away at the margin and like that different? Yeah, there are some right now. Right now, there's a global chip shortage for computer yeah. chips. And so the supply response, which normally would be very aggressive, has not been there because there just simply are not enough chips to build enough miners to really have enough supply response. Um, and that's a, a global aspect. These mm -hmm. are not chips just for Bitcoin miners. These are similar chips to you using your phone for computers, for all sorts of different things. So um, so, so, so that the, 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 the chip manufacturers have said that they don't believe that that's going to be fixed until 2023. So it looks like we still have a, a year plus of, of leeway before that uh, before we'll see a major supply response the other thing too is that i would still argue bitcoin mining is still a pretty small industry relative to you know healthcare telecommunications mm -hmm. others cars and so once more chips become available i would argue that those other industries would have more money to throw at the chip manufacturers so that they would get the chips first before a bitcoin miner uh, that produces them would get them so i would suspect at least maybe even mid 2023 or later that we'll see a decent supply response so that's the first thing yeah. The other thing too is that if you want to have a, uh, uh, a a meaningful amount of machines, it requires a lot of money. Like each one of these machines costs anywhere between, you know, five thousand dollars a machine to a hundred. Uh, sorry, to twelve thousand dollars a machine. If you're a retail investor who's buying one or two, you're definitely paying at the top end of that price, and that gets pretty expensive. Um, you need to have competitive energy costs. Like I live in yeah. I, I live in Toronto, and it wouldn't make sense. Well, actually, it still would because the margins are so high. But generally speaking, you wouldn't want to mine where we're paying, you know, plus 10 cents uh, per kilowatt hour, whereas my machines are running somewhere in the, you know, three to six cent uh, uh, power range. So we're, we're just a lot more competitive. And the other thing, too, is that um, if you want scale, it's really difficult to find power right now. Uh, everyone probably has heard that China has effectively kicked out the miners from, yeah. from, from their country. And so all of those miners have been looking for new homes over the past few months, uh, some going to Kazakhstan, but a lot of them have been going to North America. And so 
wherever you want to have a Bitcoin mining friendly type of location, some probably has already been there and has taken the best one. So there's really not that many. And right now we're seeing more companies trying to build their own because there's just not that many available right now. And if you if there are, they know that they're rare. So they're charging an arm and a leg for their, uh, for their space. Very interesting. So the mm -hmm. supply challenges, especially getting chips, is um, you know going to keep that uh, margin mm -hmm. pretty healthy, at least for the short term. And yeah. then after that, again, like we've seen, the chip shortage is the chip shortage is impacting all industries and it's about you know um who's going to be able to like secure the chips fastest and you know if i'm an independent bitcoin miner i probably will be near the bottom of the totem <laughs> you think right so yeah yeah um cool super interesting and griffin specifically i think you know one of the neat things about um the organization is it's focused on you know being the first bitcoin miner with negative carbon footprint yeah um for those who aren't too familiar, you, you know, there are obviously some uh, concerns about like the environmental impact of Bitcoin mining specifically. I've seen every, things on Twitter and New York Times just kind of comparing the amount of energy consumption of mining Bitcoin compared to countries. Yeah. Um, I obviously have my bias and I'm a Bitcoin Bitcoiner myself. So I uh, am a I don't I, I feel like that's just like fear uncertainty and doubt that's being uh shilled because if you're comparing against like the broader global financial system or even like the yeah. the gold mining industry it's actually not that big but um would love to get your thoughts number one on just like the overall uh sentiment and like uh maybe myth misconception that bitcoin mining is not good for the environment number one yeah. and then number two to talk a little bit more about what griffin is doing to uh, think yeah. about solving the problem differently. Yeah, absolutely. So the 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 energy use for Bitcoin I see is actually a feature as opposed to a fault for yeah. the network because simply one of the most important things for the blockchain network and in particular for finance is the security of the system. And so the beauty of the Bitcoin mining system is that it requires so much power that is very difficult to in my opinion pretty much impossible for a bad player to negatively impact Bitcoin. And well, and I'll, and I'll explain it as this. As I mentioned a little bit earlier, for a transaction to be locked into the blockchain, it has to agree, over 50% of the computers in the network have to agree that that's accurate. And so in order to do that, you would actually have to control over 50% of the computers. Now, yeah. if the amount of power required is the amount of a country or a medium-sized or a small country, who has the amount of money to actually take over that much power use it without anyone noticing and and be able to affect the system so in my opinion it's pretty much impossible for the security of the blockchain network or at least in bitcoin to be hacked simply because it's just near impossible to either financially fund it or be able to surreptitiously control that much power without anyone noticing because there are millions of eyes on this all the time we will notice when there is a spike unless you somehow take over everyone's machines and it's not as if we won't notice that so uh, mm -hmm. I, I think that's part of it. The, the other part too to talk about is the utility of this. People argue as if there is no reason for Bitcoin to exist. This is, we're, we're undergoing a period where we're seeing the replacement of one thing with another. In, our, in my opinion, for Bitcoin specifically, we're replacing the fiat money system, like the dollar, the Canadian dollar, the yen, the whatever, with Bitcoin. And so it's similar to when you look at cars, the horse versus a car, right? Everyone used to use horses. Cars clearly have a more negative carbon footprint relative to horses, but we're all using cars now and very few of us are using horses, right? I think we're seeing that type of switch over where the global utility of this new technology, this being Bitcoin uh, and blockchain 
warrants the change and warrants the increase in energy use. Because if you look over human history, our energy use has always been growing because we've been always finding superior technologies to what we used to do before. Mm-hmm. And I would challenge that most of us watching, because we're watching on a computer, because that's technology, don't want to go back to the period where we're, you know, you're churning butter and pumping water out of the well to live, because that's not the life that we currently enjoy now. Yeah, yeah, all great points. Um, and then secondly, around like Griffin, can you talk a little bit more about, yeah. um, you know, what Griffin is doing to also, number one, change the narrative, but also just actually, you know, mine Bitcoin in a responsible and sustainable way? Yeah, thank, thanks, for, thanks for asking for that. So Griffin is unique, uh, at least it started off as unique, because a year ago, almost to the day, we started the company, and from the very beginning, within our DNA, believed that we should be an ESG-focused company. And for those mm-hmm. who are not familiar, environmental, social, and governance. Um, we're, we're very big on the S and G part, but right now, I think a lot of people talk more on the E part, which is the environment yeah. part. Um, so from the very beginning, as opposed to most of our peers, our goal was to always do this in a environmentally friendly way. So our power was always sourced from 100% carbon neutral sources. So our first one is 100% hydro. It's a facility in upstate New York, it uses the St. Lawrence River. Our other partnership right now uses a mix of nuclear and hydro and whatever small amount that they use that is carbon emitting, it's being offset because contractually with us, uh, it is required that any power that, they, that we use through them has to be carbon neutral. So that's how we start off and that's how we thought. So while many of our peers who did not think of it that way and did not have that mindset are now scrambling to go towards carbon neutrality, we already sit there because from the very beginning, we believe that that's the right thing to do and that's the way we want to run our business. Um, On top of that, we've gone carbon negative because we have carbon neutral operations, but we want to do more and lead the space. And so what we did was along with our potential merger partner, Sphere, we've acquired half a million carbon offset credits. So these credits can be used for a variety of things. One is when we need to travel, we usually use planes, we can offset that. Uh, When we order our machines, it usually is delivered by plane. So we can offset the carbon imprint of those with these carbon credits. And at the end of the day, there's always opportunities that might temporarily require the use of carbon credits because say we need to start up an operation somewhere that will become green, but isn't green right now, we could offset that if we need to. So it gives us lots of of optionality uh, for that. And we're carbon negative, so not only we being neutral, but we're helping the world by, by supporting that. And, and, and I think and I think that's really important because the general thinking, and we did this before Elon Musk made it popular. I kind of want to point that out. Elon Musk a few months ago, well, at least a few quarters ago now, uh, uh, made a comment about how uh, the, the energy use has to be uh, more renewable for it to be sustainable. We fully agree mm-hmm. and we were doing that. So we kind of were doing it before it was cool and, and, and are happy that uh, we're one of the leading companies in doing so because we're already achieved neutral, well, neg- negative levels. Yeah, very prescient too, right? Just like seeing that as like, you know, one of the key value propositions of of the company. And um, now you see a lot of companies, not just in the mining space, but throughout industries, just catching up. And it's a it's a it's a requirement now, right? That's what um, large institutional investors are requiring in terms of ESG reporting and responsibility. Yeah, and I, I, I fully agree. I think the social conscious has moved towards ESG investing in general. So at worst. It's going to be seen as a bonus to someone who doesn't care and at best it's going to be the only potential thing that an esg focused investor will even look at so for companies thinking in a financial way your potential total addressable market of investors shrinks if you don't think this way so why would you right yeah and also the other one thing last thing i want to add is the the economic impact of being so environmentally friendly isn't negative anymore it there used to be it used to be where if you wanted green energy you have to pay more 
That's not really the case anymore. In most situations, we're just as competitive, if not cheaper than traditional uh, dirty power. Uh, and, and that's that's the thinking that has to change because it's certainly doable now and we're doing it. Yeah, yeah, very cool. Um, so in the last 10 minutes or so, I wanted to shift gears more around like your life and like career, career advice. Yeah. And it's quite clear like, um, Earlier in your career, you, again, focused mainly on like finance, um, going into banking, going into hedge fund, staying within mm -hmm. business. Was that something that you were always interested in when you were young? Were you pretty set on doing your undergraduate and uh, graduate degrees in business or how did you yeah. find that? Yeah, it's, you know, it, and, uh, and I'll link this back to the whole uh, the Asian theme. There are certain jobs you're kind of funneled to. You're either going to be a doctor or a lawyer or you're going to do something in finance, right? So um, I, I don't have the patience to read all the books for a lawyer. And I'm not a big fan of cutting people. So being a doctor with them, <laughs> yeah. so, uh, you know, finance is kind of the only other thing, which I thankfully I enjoy doing. So, uh, yeah, from the very beginning was always uh, always a career in finance. I always wanted to be a portfolio manager, did that a little bit, uh, and then found a career path during the doing the research investment banking side, which really gets to cut your teeth in understanding how businesses work, uh, how investors look at businesses. It, it's, it's a good way to, to just understand how those things work. It is a good jumping point to do other things. Uh, which I'm currently doing now. So yeah, it was a focus for me. Okay, great. And then what about in terms of, you know, where you're at today, which is being a, you know, CEO, co-founder of a large company. It's now public. Is that right? Not yet. We're working Not on yet. it. On yeah. the reverse merger. Okay. Soon to right. be public. Um, was that always something that you aspired to to do or how, you know, some people I feel like have a very clear vision of, I want to be this when I grow up. Um, were you falling more in that camp or mainly focusing on other things like the work and just like doing things that interested you. It, 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 it's funny you ask that because I did think about this a while ago. Um, I, I think most kids would at one point say, I want to be CEO without mm -hmm. any understanding of what that really means, because <laughs> sure, I yeah. want to be the leader of something too. I want to be president, right? Yeah. So it's it, it's kind of like, um, it, it, it's, it's a goal that thankfully I, I have been able to get to. Um, but was I targeting this? Kind of, but that's, it, it's it's a mix of, being in the right place, right time, having the proper skill sets for the specific business that needed that a CEO uh, for it to work. So short answer is, was did I always want to? Yes. And as I moved through my career, I put myself in positions where I would get the tools necessary to get me to this position. So uh, going back to what I mentioned a little earlier, having a good background in finance mm -hmm. certainly helps because without money, nothing runs. So you need yeah. to understand that. And that, of course, need that means understanding how the capital system works, how we find money, how we keep prices up, how we deal with investors, uh, how we deal with regulators, stuff like that, that helps. And then, of course, you know, stuff you learn in business class, which is with respect to, you know, uh, budgeting, understanding, uh, accounting and doing that. So having that kind of baseline is important. And then after that, which is something that people miss is networks. You, you need mm -hmm. to know the right people, meet the right people to get into position to even be considered for stuff like that. So as as you go through your career, definitely try to meet people who are progressively more, for lack of a better term, successful or in positions that you want to be in. Get to know them, have them like you, uh, and, and understand that you actually can contribute and just keep moving up that way. So, uh, and then after that, because being in finance uh, only gets you the skill set, you then need to actually know a certain business to run it, right? Unless you happen to be the CEO of a bank which is a really hard job to get to. But um, you would then probably need to transition into some type of industry and actually know what that industry does so you can actually be an effective CEO. And that's why I ended up almost, well, jumping into when I joined Riot, luckily enough at the CFO position and then learning how Bitcoin works from the inside and how mining works from the inside. But uh, but yeah, it, it was kind of a target, but to get there, there is a 
kind of a thoughtful path that people need to kind of uh, see their opportunities and move towards. Great. And, um, you know, the other thing I think about too, is just like, you know, being in the tech space or like even in a crypto space, um, I, I don't have a technical background, right? I'm not an engineer by by trade or by profession. Um, how do you square that up? You know, being the CEO of a company which is built on, you know, Bitcoin and like, fo sorry, focused on Bitcoin, um, but, you know, you might not necessarily have the technical skills to, um, well, let me let me reframe it, which is I personally, and maybe it's my own insecurity, feel like, oh, how could I do such a big job for what I view to be somewhat of a technical type of company and industry if I if I don't have that technical background? I, how, do, how do you frame that in your mind to not I, make that a handicap? I really love that you asked the question because this is probably one of the most misconcept biggest misconceptions. I can't even say the word properly. Misconceptions people have with being the leader of any company. And mm -hmm. one thing is, is that there's no way that the CEO of any company will know how to do everything within it. It's just mm -hmm. quite frankly impossible. When you look at the CEOs of most companies, they're usually specialists in certain areas and just good generalists for others. And then what they do is they rely on trusted people at other senior positions to take care of the, the other things. Mm -hmm. I am blessed with a phenomenal team that I believe is second to none in the industry. And I know everyone says this, but I really challenge people to look through the resumes of, of everyone. And, and I truly believe that we have the best team. Uh, for, for the technical side, uh, we, on, for our company, we have Chris Ensi who, is, who built Riot with me on the, on the technical side. He's also done it with other companies as well. And uh, we, we have Brittany Kaiser, who is uh, on the Congressional Committee for Blockchain. So she understands the detail of that. Yeah. I'm a finance guy, right? So for me, it's I understand the money. I know how to deal with the investors. And uh, and I know how to run a company in general because I've done so. And I've, well, rescued one from bankruptcy. So that those are my credentials there. The other stuff, you have to rely on others. So you, you when you look at the CEOs of many other companies, you actually will notice that there are a lot of finance guys. There are a lot of consultants. Mm -hmm. There are a lot of lawyers that are usually the CEOs of those companies. And that's because of the, the specific skill sets that they have. And then they just have others kind of backfill the rest. So, uh, and, and I'll talk about it in a different way. I was a mining analyst for mm -hmm. 15 some odd years. This is traditional stuff out of the ground mining. I have no geology degree. I have no engineering degree. I know it's not standard, but I actually made a decent career out of it because you figure it out while you're doing it and you just focus on the things you're good at. For And for me, it was the financial stuff. So when I was analyzing companies, I did the financial stuff and then you learn everything else, right? And that's what helps you do it. And now I sit on the boards of a few mining companies too because of the uh, the, the the knowledge I've had from the finance side and and, and the and knowing enough to be dangerous for the, the stuff that I'm not classically trained in, let's say. Yeah, that's great advice because I, I do feel like it's easy for one to have insecurities about not knowing, you know, every in and out, every part of the ins and outs of their um, company or industry. So it's really reassuring to hear that advice from you. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, and, you know, one piece you kind of touched on is just like networking, but I'm actually more interested in digging deeper on like mentorship. Have yeah. Have you been... Um, one to cultivate like men, like formal or informal mentor relationships. How do you how do you view um, mentorship as a part of your you know career journey? Because I do feel like it, as an Asian Canadian, uh, first generation here, like my parents immigrated in the eighties, that wasn't really a thing, right? It's always just focus, put your nose down, get good grades, work for a company, like you know, um, not necessarily work the room and network. Um, how do you think about that and? How has that played a role in your life and career? So. Yeah, I, I think that's great. Um, 
I had a mentor for myself mm-hmm. for quite a while. I still consider him a mentor, although we're in different industries now. And uh, how long has that been? That's That's been about 15 to 20 years that I've been talking to that gentleman. Uh, and it, it just kind of evolved from just having a chat. Like he was actually a, a when I was at Morningstar, so this is many moons ago, um, one of the portfolio managers that I covered. And when I left Morningstar, we just kept in touch and it turned into, evolved into a mentor relationship, mentor-mentee relationship, where I would ask him for advice and he would always give it. It's, it's, it's been great and we're very good friends now. Uh, in general, I love the idea. I've always been thinking of doing it myself. I am mm-hmm. so jammed right now, I possibly, I probably can't. But I've always been thinking of it uh, in terms of I'd like to help or at least go to events and at least speak and, and, and talk about at least certain things that I realized that I wish I knew when I was going up, uh, going up in, in, in the chain. Um, so I, I think it's very helpful. And I think anyone who can cultivate that relationship on either end is valuable on both ends should certainly do it because it opens doors. You just get understanding. Like I, th- I think all of us can say that if we could tell ourselves, our younger self 10 years ago, certain things that we've learned now, we'd be that much better or be incredibly a lot better. You're basically unlocking that with a mentor-mentee relationship with someone who does that for you. So so why not? And then from the other side, helping someone grow is incredibly mm-hmm. fulfilling. You learn things in both directions either way, no matter how successful you are. So uh, I, I think it's great. And anyone who can do this should. And those who haven't thought about it should start thinking about trying to do it because I, I, I think it's invaluable. Mm, yeah, great to pay it forward. And I think to your other point, it really has to be an authentic, natural, like evolution of a relationship, not to say, okay, I'm going to be a mentor. I'm going to find my mentees or vice versa. I feel like uh, those programs are well-intentioned, but it's really hard to like find an authentic long-term Yeah. And I think that's a key thing is you need, really need yeah. to connect with the person because after a while, you don't want it to be a job. You want the person yeah. to do what you want to help you. Yeah. You, yeah. you want an uncle or auntie, really. Like, mm-hmm. That's what it ends up you're looking for, right? Uh, so yeah, yeah I, I fully support people trying to find someone like that. It'd be yeah. great. Um, and one of the last questions is what advice would you give to your younger self? What would you tell young Rob, whether it's, you know, an undergrad student at U of T or someone in high school saying, Hey, I want to, I want to be as energized by my work as I see Rob is right now and be on the cutting edge of, uh, you know, technology and business. I wasn't expecting the question, hence the look of bewilderment. <laughs> so there's so many things. Like, I, I think one of the first things is don't care what people think. Mm. Um, I, I think as an Asian, or at least in my household, you're kind of uh, ingrained the whole thing of don't bother other people. Like, yes. uh, like, just be respectful and don't do that. And that's one of the biggest things I always have to overcome. And even in my current role, still do is just reaching out to people cold and talking to them. I hate doing that. Like, mm-hmm. if I'm in a room and I don't know you, chances are I'm not going to walk up and talk to you because I just isn't built into me to do that. Mm-hmm. And I have friends who are great at that and I envy their ability to do so. Um, and one of the things I'm still working on doing and I, I try is like get over yourself. It's not, maybe not the right thing, but it's, it's more a matter of you're not really bothering other people when you try to reach out to others and stop worrying about other, what other people think. One of the best lines I've learned from the investment banking world, uh, from the sales guys actually is, um, ask for forgiveness, not for permission, right? Mm-hmm. Which is a terrible sounding thing when you think about it. But if you want to do well and get ahead and be successful, you got to kind of have to do that sometimes in that, you know, just do it. And then if people don't like it, deal with it afterwards, but at least you could have succeeded. Otherwise you're just paralyzed and not doing anything. Um, and, and, I, and I don't, I, I'm not trying to say this as a blanket, always do that because you can get yourself in serious trouble doing the wrong thing. Like be, be, think, be, be thoughtful about it. But 
uh, action is always better than inaction if you think behind if you give yourself some uh, proper thinking behind it before you make that decision. So I think that would be the biggest advice I'd give myself is go for it. Uh, stop being so lazy sometimes because we're always sometimes lazy. But uh, I, but, I, but I seriously think uh, uh, don't worry about it. And, and go for it is probably yeah. one of the best things I could tell myself. Great advice. And I do think, especially for like our community, like the Asian American, Asian Canadian community, it is like that kind of a struggle with the culture of like, respect your elders, like don't talk too much about yourself, like kind of ask for permission out of respect. Mm -hmm. um, but I do, I do feel like as I've gotten older too, just to see, mm -hmm. you know, if you want to live a, you know, full life, that's like uh, fully expressed and mm -hmm. one where you get energy, you really just have to, own yeah. it right just go do it and you know what, I, you know what I, i'm gonna cheat and say another one because you just said it to me and yeah, i see yeah, it yeah. a lot and i definitely want to bring that up is don't be so humble because it, it's mm. such an asian thing to be humble and like the other cultures aren't necessarily as like that and i don't mean this is an us versus them it's just how we're yeah, brought yeah. up and i see a lot of people who are humble so much that they downplay themselves and people don't know how good they are you don't get promoted if people don't know how good you are so you have to show off a bit you have to make sure people know what you have done. And here, here's, here's, here's a trick. What I did with all of my bosses when I was going up through the ranks is I would always summarize my successes and send it to them so they would know, mm -hmm. right? It sounds really annoying and, and, and weird, but it, 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 try not to be a, a, a jerk about it in the way you do it, but find a way to summarize, okay, this past month, this is what I did and have, have a list of accomplishments so they know because people are so in their own bubble that they don't necessarily notice. And you can't just hope that they do because it's not their job. Like everyone's the hero of their own story, right? Yeah. And so you might think that they shouldn't recognize it, but they're busy doing their own stuff and they might not. So make sure people know. And so I would really encourage people to show off respectfully as much as you can, but make sure people know what you've done because you're probably shortchanging yourself if you're not. So I, 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 that's such a very passionate thing that I have to tell people because I see it way too often. Do you feel like that's a skill that you just had to develop through repetition or was it somewhat natural for you when you were it, in the workforce? It, 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 it was based off of analyzing human behavior. I, I kind of mm. do that on my own. And 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 I and that line I just said, everyone's the hero of the hero of their own story, is something I kind of realized in that no no one is you can't expect someone to think for you or notice yeah. you because do I notice everyone else? Probably not. Right. So that means that someone else is doing the same thing. Yeah. So you need to figure out ways to, 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 to get where you want. And that's the key thing is we, we are in a society and this is cross-cultural where there, there's a lot of entitlement. I know that's an overused word, but I truly believe that if people try hard enough and do enough or figure out a way, you have to be resourceful and figure out a way to, to, to get ahead, uh, figure out paths and don't just sit there and not do anything. Cause you're definitely not getting anywhere if you don't do it. And most of the successful people that I have run into that, at least my definition of success, uh, they are the ones who figure out how to get things done, not ask someone else where you can, or but but not rely on someone else to do it for you. That is such a key thing. So definitely take take control and and, and figure out a way. And so yes, yeah. I did. I had to plan it out, but I ended up doing it, and it worked. Love that advice. I I I like the analogy of um like setting your own sail. Right, we, there are things we can't control, like the wind or like how choppy the waters are, but if you can still at least control the sale that you set yeah. and um even if it still ends up you know someone getting off course i think it makes the journey more fun too right just to know yeah. you had some more agency into the direction of what is life or, or yeah and, and i think everything happens for a reason right yeah. like i've had some massive setbacks that ended up being gateways into incredible opportunities 
So, you know, just take what comes and, and work with it. It, Great. It, it can work out. You just have to keep be resourceful. Rob, this was amazing. Um, for folks who want to find you on the internet, where's the best place for them to uh, catch you? Well, I, I'm on Twitter, uh, <laughs> and it's it's kind of a, a, an odd name. It's my gamer tag from way, way back, and I've never changed it, but it's Omnipotent32 on Twitter. Uh, so you Love can it. find me through that. I'm on LinkedIn if you just search Rob J. Great. Uh, and Griffin Digital Mining, of course. Is awesome. And uh, do you want to share a price prediction for Bitcoin in the next 6 to 12 months? Yeah, I think we're exiting out at 100000 Oh, yeah. I, I, I truly believe that. And I think within probably the next couple of years, we're going to see two to 300,000. We're just going to see a ramp. We're, 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 we're getting a lot more uptake. The thinking now is not, will this survive? It, it's more a matter of uh, how much are we going to end up using it, which is a key change because those who are risk averse will now be more comfortable with, with using it or investing in it. And so I think global uptake and global usage of this is going to increase. And because of that, we're going to see a lot of demand. And we're just at the very beginning of that. So 100,000 by the end of the year, two to three within a few years. I like it. So keep stacking sats and uh, Bitcoin to the moon. Yeah, I agree. <laughs> thanks so much, Rob. I really enjoyed it. I really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for having time. me. It was just fun. Cool. Thanks. Hey, everyone. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Asian Tech Leaders. If you enjoyed the podcast, please share it with your family and friends, leave me a review on iTunes, or drop me a note on our website, asiantechleaders.com. I really appreciate having each of you as a listener and sharing your valuable time with me. Be well, stay healthy, and follow your heart. See you soon.